You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. I have three goals for this sermon on Psalm 25. Clarity, complexity, resolve. By the end, I hope that we will have some clarity about an important emotion that we all feel. I hope that we can celebrate the complexity of God's relation to us, and I hope that with God's help, we will have fresh resolve to walk in his ways. So those are my three goals, and they will structure this sermon. So before we get to them, let me set the stage. I wanna begin at the end of the psalm, okay? Because this is where David tells us about his present circumstances. What is David facing as he prays Psalm 25? Well, in verse 16, he's lonely. He's afflicted. He's cut off from human companionship. He's afflicted and in distress. The troubles of his heart are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The affliction and this trouble include his own sins. He says, forgive my sins in verse 18. And they include his enemies who hate him with a violent hatred. That's where David is. And as we've been going through the Psalms, it's a place where David often is. He's frequently in this spot. He's stuck and he's surrounded. And so what do you do when you're stuck and surrounded? Well, David prays. Turn to me, be gracious to me, forgive me, consider my affliction, consider my enemies, guard my soul, deliver me, let me not be put to shame. And that last request is where I want to pursue clarity. 
I wanna spend some time thinking about shame and how David deals with his own shame and the prospect of shame. And it's important in this Psalm because Psalm 25 is bracketed by shame. It opens with three quick mentions of shame. Let me not be put to shame. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And it ends, as we just saw, with another reference to being put to shame. So shame is this thick, complex, biblical concept that will require some untangling. And in our modern context, uh, many people only view shame in kind of negative terms, okay? Shame is the, is the sort of thing that we want to move past as a culture. They say, in the past, we shamed people for just being who they are, and now we wanna put those days behind us. No more shame, no more making people feel bad about who they are or what they've done. We wanna get rid of shame because shame is a negative thing and it's bad. At least that's what modern people tell themselves they wanna do. But the reality is, is that we are still addicted to shame and to shaming. Whether it's cancel culture, whether it's ransacking someone's old tweets to get them fired and publicly ostracized, we still love to shame people. Just the other day, in this city, we saw a crowd of people banish the mayor of Minneapolis from their presence with cries of, Shame, 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 go home, Jacob, shame, 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 because he refused to support their political platform. Our culture, which often verbally rejects the concept of shame, at least in certain areas, we don't want people to feel shame for this, that, or whatever, uh, and, and favors individual expression and freedom, be yourself without fear, without shame. Our culture that thinks of itself in that way still loves to shame people. And this is because shame is deeply connected to who we are as human beings. And so let's get some clarity about shame. I wanna think about the definition of shame, I wanna think about a spectrum of shame, and I wanna then explore three key aspects of shame. So here, rough definition of shame. Shame is a painful emotion birthed from a negative self-evaluation because we know we've fallen short of some standard and we've done so under the watchful gaze of others. So let me say that again. It's a painful emotion. It's birthed from a negative self-evaluation because we know we've fallen short of some standard, some ideal, and that we've done so under the watchful gaze of other people. In this sense, shame is a social emotion. It has to do with how we relate to other people and how we live before other people. And as a result, shame actually has a positive function in society. It's, it's one of the glues that holds communities together. As human beings, we want connection. We want relationship. We wanna be honored and respected and accepted by other people. And so the prospect of being shamed and humiliated before others keeps us from violating the community's standards. Okay? Shame substitutes, this is important, shame substitutes for physical coercion. We don't have to whack each other, we don't have to do violence to each other to keep each other in line because shame, the prospect of being shamed, keeps us from getting out of line. It's a way of maintaining cohesion and connection in a community. Okay? It's, it's, it's a way that we internalize our community's standards so that we feel shame when we violate them even if other people don't know. 
Okay, so like this is important. It's not just uh, that when people find out we feel shame. Sometimes we feel shame even if they haven't found out yet because we imagine what it will be like if they did. If they know what I did, if they know what I said, if they know what I felt, if they knew, if I was exposed, I'd feel shame. And so I feel the shame kind of in anticipation of that possible moment. So shame is this painful emotion birthed from a negative self-evaluation because we know we've fallen short of some standard and we've done so under the watchful gaze of others. That's my definition of shame. Now let's talk about the spectrum of shame. And here what I'm thinking about is a spectrum of intensity, okay? From embarrassment on one end to humiliation on the other. Okay, so embarrassment, I would say, on this end, so shame's in the middle, shame proper, and then embarrassment over here, it's uh, a milder form of shame. And it's, it's what we feel over what we might call a purely social flaw, okay? Not necessarily a moral flaw. So if you have spinach between your, uh, in your teeth, if you put your shirt on backwards, if you forgot to zip up your pants, if you say something ridiculous, what do you feel? You feel embarrassment. You feel a, a mild form of shame. And with embarrassment, the, the standard that we're falling short of is not necessarily a moral one, but it's a social one. Sometimes it's even an imaginary one. We don't, uh, we feel embarrassed because of the possibility that we might do the wrong thing, even if we haven't done it yet. So people who feel embarrassed when they have to stand up in front of people uh, and give a speech or, or when all eyes are on them, even if they haven't done anything, even if there's nothing actually wrong, feel a sense of embarrassment because what might I say? What might I do? What might be wrong? Um, so that's embarrassment. So if embarrassment over here is driven by social and, and often external and superficial factors, Shame proper, the middle, is driven by exposure of our character or of some fundamental aspect of our identity. Okay, so, so we feel shame most often when we fall short of a moral standard, though it doesn't always have to be moral. Okay, so this is it's important. So often it's a moral standard when we feel shame proper, but it doesn't have to be moral. It could be simply something more fundamental to our identity, and two biblical examples can illustrate this, both of them actually having to do with childbirth. Okay, so in Matthew chapter one, when Mary becomes pregnant with Jesus by the Holy Spirit, Joseph understandably assumes that she's been unfaithful to him. And so he decides to break off the marriage, okay? But the Bible says because he's an honorable man, he wants to do it quietly because he is unwilling to put her to shame, okay? So like if he, given her pregnancy, if he made a big deal about her pregnancy, if he brought more eyes, if she had to live under the watchful gaze of others, more eyes onto her pregnancy, if he publicized her apparently sinful behavior in front of the whole community, he would be putting her to shame because she had violated a moral standard. And so that's, that's, a, that's a kind of shame that comes from an apparent, and it wasn't real in that case, but could have been a real violation of a moral standard. In the old days, right, this is what the scarlet letter was for. Right in, in Nathaniel Hawthorne's famous book, uh, Hester Prynne has to wear a scarlet A on her clothes because she is an adulterer. And meanwhile, the person that she committed adultery with has been carving. He's, he's the preacher, he's a, uh, he hasn't been exposed yet, and so he's been carving a scarlet A on his chest because he feels that shame internally. He knows what people would think 
if they knew that he also was violating, but he has been cowardly. He hasn't come forward with his own infidelity. Uh, and so he's been carving it on his chest. But that's shame proper because it's a violation of a moral standard. But another form, a violation of our fundamental identity. Okay, this is Luke chapter one when Elizabeth becomes pregnant with John the Baptist. And the Bible says that she rejoices because God has taken away her reproach or God has taken away her shame. In this case, she felt shame, not because she'd done something wrong. Barrenness isn't a sin but because being a mother was so core to her identity, to who she is. And so she felt she was falling short of that ideal of, of a mother. She couldn't be a mother, and so she felt like, I'm, I feel ashamed. Even though she hadn't done anything sinful, she felt shame and reproach, and she felt broken. And so when God gives her pregnancy, she rejoices because the Lord takes away her shame. And so that's shame proper. Hum uh, embarrassment? Violation of social conventions, spinach in your teeth, shame proper, moral or fundamental aspects of our identity, and then at the other end of the spectrum, shame on steroids, it's humiliation. This is shame, but it's accompanied by two things, okay? First, we're held in contempt by those around us, okay? So uh, when we're embarrassed, uh, other people might feel embarrassed with us, okay? So this is the phenomenon, like when you're watching a TV show, this is what I feel when I watch shows like The Office and there's that embarrassing moment. I feel the embarrassment with them. I sometimes have to turn away. I cringe. I, I, I feel like this. Some of you are like that. You, you cringe. Even if you laugh, you cringe because of how awkward and embarrassing it is. So oftentimes, other people feel the embarrassment with us or, or maybe they feel uh, pity for us. Okay, so Elizabeth's friends, Right, might have felt some pity for her in her reproach, in her shame. They might have felt bad for her, okay? But humiliation occurs when those around us aren't feeling embarrassment with us or pity for us, but they are deriding us, mocking us, exulting over us in our shame, holding us in contempt. That's the first addition that makes shame into humiliation. And the second is that humiliation often carries with it a sense of injustice. Because those who hold us in contempt have unfairly put us in this place. Right, there's a sense of injustice, like, like they have acted so that we feel ashamed, they've done something to expose us so that we feel ashamed, and they've done so unfairly, unrighteously, and so they're exulting over us illegitimately, and so humiliation often carries with it a profound sense of injustice. So for example, when the mayor was humiliated the other day, when that crowd invited him out there to ask him their questions, and then mocked and derided him and exulted over him, he was, he was humiliated. He was humiliated uh, for his answer. So we've got a definition, we've got a spectrum, and now three additional key aspects, okay? So here, here these, these are important. Shame involves an objective reality and a subjective feeling. And sometimes these can be out of sync, okay? So there are actions which are, according to the Bible, objectively shameful. There are things that we can do that ought to make us feel ashamed. So they are objectively shameful. But when our internal assessment doesn't correspond to that objective reality, like when our feelings don't match with the nature of what we've done, something's off. So if we don't feel shame over our shameful actions, what do we say? We say we're shameless, we're shameless. Now, in recent weeks, we've had protests and rallies that at their best have been an attempt 
to express pain and anger and solidarity over injustice. That's why people have been marching at their best. It's not all that has been happening, but that's what's been happening. It's, it's been a march for justice, to express pain and solidarity at our history, at current events, at things that have been happening in our city. That's what's been happening. That's the kind of march that's been happening. And many of, some of you have been marching in that. And it's, it's good for us to show solidarity where we can with the pain and the solidarity. But there are also, around this time of year, different kinds of marches. What if instead of protests over injustice, people were marching in a parade to celebrate actions and desires that God hates? What if instead of feeling ashamed over shameful acts, people march to celebrate those shameful acts. Like, like if that were to happen, what, what do we call it? That's being shameless. Or to use Paul's phrase from Philippians, that's glorying in their shame. They're glorying in their shame. They're celebrating things they ought to feel ashamed for. So that's another aspect of shame. Our, our internal uh, reaction can be out of whack with the external and objective reality. Second, our experience of shame often looks back to the past. I think this is really true for us when we feel shame. Um, I'm guessing that most of us have distinct childhood memories when we felt deep shame and embarrassment, maybe even humiliation. We did something, we said something, we made some mistake, could be innocent mistake, could be a sinful mistake. Something happened to us, maybe something not even we did, but something that happened to us. And the shame that we felt in that moment has absolutely marked us. We never want to experience that again. We will do anything to avoid feeling that emotion again. Maybe we committed perhaps some sins in our youth and we look back at them with pain and regret and shame. We, we cringe to think about the things that we've done and said. Okay, so shame has a past orientation. And then finally, third, Shame often looks forward to the future. When David here speaks of being put to shame, there's this idea that a day of exposure is coming. Like there will be a day when secrets will be revealed, when honor will be given or not, when vindication will come or not. And it's the prospect of that future moment that creates the anxiety and the anticipation of shame in the present. We anticipate the shame that we will feel on the day of exposure, and we feel that now in anticipation. That's what David, that's where David is, right? And, and a final illustration uh, may bring many of these things together. So earlier this week, uh, I saw two videos online, okay? In light of all this stuff that's going on, uh, related to this turmoil that's been rocking our country. They weren't about Minneapolis, they were from another city. Um, in the first, there was a young man dressed all in black, face covered, and he is spray painting and busting out the windows of a police car during one of the protests, okay? And, and while he's doing it, other people in the crowd, the ones who are filming him, are yelling at him to stop. Like, this isn't helping. This isn't, about, this isn't why we're out here. This isn't what we're trying to do. Why are you doing this? Stop it, stop it. They're yelling at him. And his response, to their uh, commands to stop is brazen. Like he uses some very crude gestures and just kind of flaunts his ability to do whatever he wants. And he continues to shamelessly destroy that police car. Okay, so that's the video number one. 
Second video is from a few days later when that same young man is walking into the courthouse flanked by his parents while reporters badger him for a comment as he prepares to turn himself in. In that video, there's no brazenness. There's no crude gestures, there's no bring it on, there's no look at me. Neither he nor his parents make eye contact with anyone. Their eyes are down on the ground, they're ignoring all requests, because why? The day of exposure has come, and he has been put to shame because of what he did. And he's, he's, he's violated the standards of the community, and now the watchful gaze of others, he's living under that, and he's ashamed as he goes to that courthouse. That, that brings together this idea of you can be shameless, but there's a day coming, there's a day coming when there will, all things will be exposed, and what will we feel in that moment? Now, what does all this have to do with Psalm 25? Well, in this Psalm, David is concerned that that day's coming, and that he's gonna be put to shame. Why? Why does he feel that? Well, in his case, it's because he's put all of his eggs in the Yahweh basket. Like, he's all in with Yahweh. He says at the very beginning, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust. I'm not trusting in those gods. I'm not trusting in those gods. I'm not trusting in princes. I'm trusting in Jesus, and in, in Yahweh, and in Yahweh alone. To you, O Lord, I'm praying. To you, O Lord, I'm trusting. I'm waiting on you. All of my prayers, all of my trust, all of my hope are in God. And yet, he's lonely, he's afflicted, he's surrounded by enemies, which means unless God shows up in a big way, he'll be put to shame. And he'll be put to shame before the contemptuous gaze of enemies who hate him and will exult over him. If God doesn't show up to vindicate him, what does that say about David? It says, David, you're not worthy. David, you're not good enough. David, God doesn't care about you. You're not worth his effort. He's rejected you. He's abandoned you. You're alone. You're outcast. You're done. That's what it would say. And so David waits for God. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm not backing out of my trust. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm waiting for you. And while he does, he remembers the promises that those who wait for the Lord will not be put to shame, but instead, those who do uh, causeless evil, who are wantonly treacherous, they will be ashamed. On the day of exposure, they will be humiliated for their brazen acts of treachery. And so David has confidence that the wicked, that sinners will be exposed and shamed when God shows up. So that's the clarity about shame. And it leads very nicely into the complexity of God's character and his relation to us. So think about this. On the one hand, David's hope is that God will expose and judge and shame sinners. Like when he shows up, they will be ashamed. Those sinners over there will be ashamed. The wantonly treacherous enemies hating him, surrounding him, they'll be ashamed. On the other hand, look at verse, chapter 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, what? Therefore, he shames sinners. He's good. He's upright. Therefore, he shames sinners, right? He crushes sinners. He exposes and judges and condemns sinners, right? He's good and upright. That's his attributes, his character, and therefore he shames them, right? No, that's not what it says. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Now, that's surprising. Because apparently, 
the relation between the good and upright God and sinners is complex. And so we have to think and we have to make some distinctions. Why does God expose and condemn and shame some sinners and instruct other sinners in the way? Well, here's, here's the answer. Some sinners are wantonly treacherous. They're causelessly false. They just, they, they do evil just to do evil. They just exult in doing evil and being brazen in their acts of hatred and violence. In other words, they're unrepentant in their sin. But there's another kind of sinner. Notice the parallels in verses 8, 9, 10, 12, and 14 in terms of who God teaches and instructs. So listen carefully. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Verse 12, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. In other words, these are humble sinners. These are covenant keeping sinners. These are God-fearing sinners. Now, okay, you might think, oh, so, so you're saying they're little sinners. They're not great sinners. They're, they're little sinners. They commit minor sins in small quantities. These are, these are little sinners. And so God says, you've only done little sins, so I'll instruct you. But the big sinners, they're going to get shamed. It's not what it is. Look carefully at verse 11. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. David is a great sinner. That's one of the reasons why he's lonely and afflicted. God is chastising him. He's committed some great sin and he needs forgiveness, but great sin in David's mind means it's, good, it's great forgiveness. My sin is great, I need great forgiveness, which means I need a great forgiver, so I'm gonna pray in the name of a great and merciful God. So the first aspect of complexity here is that there are different kinds of sinners in Psalm 25. There are unrepentant, reckless, and brazen sinners who will be put to shame on the day of exposure, and then there are the humble, God-fearing, covenant-keeping, forgiveness-asking, great sinners whose guilt will be pardoned and who will never be put to shame. And that complexity in, in God's relation to sinners leads to a complexity in David's prayer. Okay, and this is amazing. If, if I was gonna pick one thing from Psalm 25 for you to walk away with today, it's this prayer in verses six and seven. Just to get the complexity and the glory, I want you to, I want you to receive the glory of this complexity right here. Look carefully at the three remembers in verses six and seven. Number one. David prays, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. In other words, remember your eternal attributes, God. Remember your ancient and everlasting character. Remember, God, who you are, what you're like. Remember that. That's the first remember. Second, don't remember. So forget. Don't remember what? The sins of my youth or my transgressions. Forget, Lord, my sins. Remember your mercy and forget my sins. And then three, but don't forget me. Don't forget me. Remember me according to your steadfast love. That's verse six. I, he said, remember your steadfast love. Now, according to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness. Remember your mercy and then remember me, but not my sin. Forget my sin, but don't forget me. Remember me, but 
Don't remember my sin. That's the complexity of the prayer. That's a glorious prayer to pray. It's a daily prayer to pray. Lord, when you wake up, when you put your head on the pillow, Lord, remember your mercy to me. Don't remember my sins. Please forget them. Cast them as far as the east is from the west. Throw them into the heart of sea. Forget my sins. But God, when you forget my sins, please don't forget me. Don't forget me. Remember me according to your steadfast love for the sake of your goodness. Remember me. That brings us then to resolve. A major theme in this psalm is the ways or the paths of God. It shows up. Verse four, make me know your ways, teach me your paths. Verse eight, uh, he instructs sinners in the way. Uh, he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love. Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. Again and again, there's a way that we are to live and to walk in order that we may not be put to shame in the end. And that way includes the things we've seen, those complex prayers, remember me but not my sin. It includes uh, where our eyes look for help. Verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. So he's, David feels lonely and afflicted, but he's not abandoning God. He's saying, I'm still all in with you, Lord. I'm all of my hope and all my trust. I'm not looking anywhere else. I, my eyes are on you for help. And the result, David says, is well-being and children. Verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being. His offspring shall inherit the land. It's blessing and offspring, prosperity and posterity. More than that, though, walking in God's way means that we're his friends. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. We are welcomed into God's secret counsels, and thus we're not hung out to dry, we're not put to shame, and then, because we're walking in God's ways, our integrity and our uprightness preserve us and keep us as we wait for the Lord to act and to redeem us out of all our troubles. So, we want to walk away from this psalm with a, a fresh resolve to walk in God's ways, to follow his path, to keep his covenant, and to look to him for help, to pray to him for blessing, and to wait on him for deliverance. I want us to come out of this psalm that, and in order to deepen that resolve, um, I, want to, I want to go to Jesus. And I want Jesus, I want to bring Jesus into the picture to enrich our understanding of clarity that we've seen about shame, and the complexity of God's relation to us and to strengthen our resolve to walk in God's ways. And so let's actually go in reverse order. Let's start with that resolve. How does Jesus in Psalm 25 help us to deepen our resolve to walk in God's ways? Well, what does Jesus say to us when we're lonely and troubled and afflicted? In John chapter 14, he's talking to disciples giving them some hard words about what's about to happen. And he looks at them, he looks around at his, his friends. He says, he calls them his friends. I've called you friends. And what does he say to his friends? He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, put all of your eggs in the Jesus basket. You have to go all in, okay? And, and he knows this is gonna feel like a risk to us. As human beings, we're putting ourselves out there here. We're, we're not tapping the ice to see, hey, will this hold me? Just like a little tap, 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 tap. No, no, we're, we're putting our full weight on the ice. That's what Jesus calls us to do. Put your full weight on the ice and trust that it's gonna hold. And that if it doesn't hold, I'll rescue you. There's no hedging your bets. You have to choose a path and you have to start walking. 
You have to select a way. And in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so we look to Jesus for deliverance and salvation. Psalm 25, David keeps his eyes ever toward the Lord. Now we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so Jesus gives us fresh resolve and calls us to walk in God's ways because he is the way and our eyes are fixed on him. More than that, Jesus illuminates the complexity of God's relation to us as sinners. Okay, so how can a good and perfect and upright God forgive sinners and instruct sinners in the way? How, how is that possible? Well, Romans 8 beautifully describes what Jesus has to do with that question. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, notice this, here's the complexity here, okay? No condemnation for us, despite our ungodliness, despite our sin, because God did what the law couldn't do. And what couldn't the law do? The law couldn't condemn our sin without condemning us. That's what the law couldn't do. The law could not condemn sin without also condemning us. And so in other words, what God did in sending Jesus is he, Jesus makes it possible to separate sinners from their sin. He makes it possible for to separate sinners from their sin so that the sin gets punished and the sinners are forgiven and instructed. Romans 8 explains why it is that we can pray, remember me, remember me, but not my sin. Pardon my guilt for it's great and Christ is a great savior, remember me, but not my sin. Finally, Jesus is central in addressing us in our deep fear of being put to shame. We all fear exposure. We all look to the future with foreboding because we wonder what is gonna happen on the day when all of the secrets will be revealed. Look, will I be ashamed? Will I be humiliated? Will, will I be enough? When the secrets of men are revealed, when people finally see me for who I really am, will I be mocked? Will I be derided? Will I be put to shame? And Jesus is the answer to that fear. Because Jesus took our shame upon himself. Because he was exposed on our behalf. Because he was mocked and derided. Which means we can, as we seek to run the race set before us, as we seek to walk in God's ways, we look to him. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Who? Hebrews 12. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. He despised the shame. He held, he didn't, he wasn't held in contempt. He held shame in contempt. He didn't shrink back from it in fear. He knew it was coming. He sweat blood and had great anguish of heart as he contemplated it, but he gained fresh resolve. He said, not my will, yours be done. And so he despised the shame and his confidence in God was not disappointed. 
In the end, he was vindicated. His enemies, the principalities and powers were put to open shame because he triumphed over them in the cross and in the resurrection and he now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he calls us to follow him. To risk it all. To put all of our eggs in the Jesus basket. And this is what the saints of old did and I wanna conclude this sermon by reading my favorite biblical passage on shame, the greatest antidote that I know to the fear of shame. It's from Hebrews chapter 11, listen carefully. These, talking about the Old Testament saints, these all died in faith, all their eggs in the Jesus basket, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, if they'd been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Like, they could have gone back, they could have waffled, they could have hedged their bets, they could have returned. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Here's the key line. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The ultimate answer to our fear of living under the contemptuous gaze of others is to know that when we put our, Lord, our trust in the Lord, when we wait on Him, He's not ashamed to be called our God. We're His beloved, we're His creation, His treasured possession. Whatever the world may think, whatever rejection and exposure we may face, God has prepared a place for us and he is not ashamed to call us his own.